I will trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Podcast Brexit Focus. My name's Jared Dean and as always I'm joined by our Brexit expert Paul Gosling. Paul, you're very welcome. Good to see you. Hello there, Gerard. This is the fifth in our special series looking at Brexit and the impact that it might have in the Northwest and Northern Ireland as a whole. We have to thank, as always, our funders of this podcast, the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, and it's done through their Brexit Dialogue Fund. You'll hear more about that later on. But Hollywell Trust also has a number of core funders, including the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland, Derry City and Strabane District Council, the Erna Funds and the Department for Foreign Affairs. Was a month in Brexit land, as always. I think the most significant thing that has come out of the month is the House of Lords vote, support for Britain staying in the customs union after Brexit. Uh, this isn't altogether a surprise. Uh, it's known that the House of Lords is a lot less keen on Brexit than the House of Commons is, or at least the Conservative Party mm. members of the House of Commons. Uh, there's now a lot of uh, discussion around whether the House of Commons will do the same thing. This week, there is a vote which doesn't particularly influence anything, but there is another vote coming along soon after, which is important. Now, there were suggestions over the weekend that Theresa May had given out hints, or her office had given out hints, that they wouldn't particularly worry if actually the House of Commons decided that it wanted to stay in the customs union. Afterwards, other officials said, no, of course this is not the case, and she is fully committed to leaving the customs union. If we did stay in the customs union, you know, this is possible that there'll be a vote to stay in the customs union. This would help to resolve some things in terms of the future of the Irish border. Mm. But we don't really have much clear idea about whether the House of Commons will vote to stay within the customs union. Um, It would cause a big political row within the Conservative Party if that was the decision. And it was suggested by Theresa May's office that, in fact, it would be a vote of confidence if that did happen. But uh, as uh, an old academic friend of mine, uh, Professor uh, Colin Talbot, has pointed out, uh, because of the fixed-term parliament legislation, there's no such thing anymore about a vote of confidence in the House of Commons. Mm. So actually what it might mean is that Theresa May would have to step down as Prime Minister, but it wouldn't actually be a constitutional crisis necessarily, and it wouldn't necessarily lead to a general election. Mm. Or a massive shift in policy direction either. Well, clearly if the House of Commons did vote to stay within the Customs Union, and this is quite possible, then then that is actually uh, you know mm. a political ground shaker. So you mentioned the Irish border there. Daily Telegraph reported on Friday of last week that the EU Commission has rejected the British government's proposal in relation to the border out of hand. So where does this leave us now? Well, we've sort of got negotiation by rumour at the moment um, because the European Commission obviously briefed somebody who briefed somebody else and that led to the Daily Telegraph running a story saying the European Commission is rejecting out of hand all three options being put forward by the UK government in terms of dealing with the Irish border. Um, The UK government then responded to say, actually, it hadn't put forward any proposals as yet. So this is just speculation about speculation. But broadly, broadly, we know that the UK government is in favour of one of three options in terms of resolving the Irish border challenge. Uh, The first of those is the idea of having uh, electronic Uh, passport for goods going across the border. Mm -hmm. Uh, The European Commission has made clear that uh, this basically is an unproven level of technology. It's never happened anywhere else, and it's probably unrealistic. So they're saying, no, that doesn't work. 
The second idea that the UK government has put forward is what they call a, a customs partnership, where the UK would act on behalf of the European Union when, for example, goods were being transited through the UK from maybe Sligo going to um, maybe Berlin. Uh, then the UK, it suggests, could actually you know, act on behalf of the EU for goods transiting through or maybe things coming through from the United States going into the European Union. The UK could act on behalf of the European Union to, to handle um, duties and so on. Now, the EU said, nope, that's not an option either because it can't allow another, an external, a third party uh, country to take duties on its behalf and mm. in any case the IT systems are not matching and they simply wouldn't work. The third option that's been put forward by the UK government to the European Commission is the idea of regulatory alignment between uh, basically the south of Ireland and the north of Ireland on agriculture and goods and they're saying well that you know the UK government says well if it comes to it that will sort out the problem. Mm. The European Commission said no, it doesn't, because that only covers agriculture and goods. And in any case, you would then need uh, border controls between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And that actually is not acceptable to the European Commission. Uh, I assume, that because if, as far as they're concerned, it wouldn't be under their control. If it's not under their control, then they can't trust the system. Hmm. And I think what, the thing about that as well is it's against the DUP's wishes as well about placing any barriers between this island and the rest of Britain, if you like. Well, yes, this is true, except, of course, there are already barriers, you know, control mechanisms between uh, Northern Ireland and the Great Britain. So, for example, there are separate uh, regulatory regimes regarding uh, some aspects of the food production process. So, actually, it wouldn't necessarily be, okay. you know, a, a, a fundamental change of arrangements. But, uh, yeah, it, it seems to be ruled out anyway. Okay. And Simon Coveney uh, tarnished you as keeping pressure on the UK government as well? That's right. He said that it's up to the UK government to come up with something that is realistic and achievable and they need to get on and do it quickly. I mean, it is almost two years now since the Brexit vote, so really we need greater clarity about what's going on. UK Border Agency future seems to be in doubt, in particular in relation to a number of jobs. Well, that's right. The UK Border Agency, like some of the uh, European Union countries, is increasing the number of people it's employing because of what's going to happen, whatever it is, after Brexit. Uh, while we don't know exactly what the new role of the Border Agency will be, uh, we do expect it to have more work to do after Brexit than it does at the moment, and so they've been advertising for more people. The original advert went out saying that you had to uh, basically have a UK passport in order to apply and also encourage people from uh, the background of the security forces to apply. Mm. Um, that caused a row because it meant that people who were born in Northern Ireland but chose to adopt uh, Irish citizenship rather than UK citizenship, it appeared to suggest that they would not be eligible for these jobs. Um, that process has now been halted and um, basically the government is saying, oh, it was all a, a, a bureaucratic mistake and it wasn't actually intended. So, you know, let's let's see what happens. We don't know yet. Okay. The other thing, of course, that does need to be said, and we touch on this in the interviews later on, is that there's a lack of confidence now in the border agency and the home office and the passport agency because of all the things that have been happening to Caribbean people who arrived in the UK in the 1940s on the uh, 
the Windrush ship. Okay. And Jonathan Porte has, has been reviewing the Treasury's leaked analysis of Brexit impact, and none of it looks good. No, that's right. Jonathan Porte is, um, I mean, he's not well liked by Brexiteers, but he's a well known individual. He's a leading academic. He was a senior government uh, official in the past, and he's gone through all the Treasury papers that were sort of leaked out but uh, not formally published about what their analysis was of the impact of Brexit. And however you look at it, he says, the economy is going to be damaged mm-hmm. uh, by what happens. Uh, if we join the European economic uh, area, which is uh, the situation that uh, Norway and Switzerland are in, then basically government revenues fall by around £260 a week. Uh, £260 million? £260 million per <laughs> week. <laughs> uh, if we go for uh, a free trade agreement, if we get a free trade agreement, then actually the government revenues fall by about £875 million per week. Mm. Under the World Trade Organization rules, it could be £1.25 billion a week, per week, less mm. government revenues. And if the government gets its preferred option of you know, something that's not off the shelf, but something specially negotiated, then government revenues fall by around £615 million a week. So it says the situation is pretty difficult. Uh, the National Audit Office has also looked at some of the evidence, and it says that actually... While the government expects the cost of the divorce bill with the European Union to be between 35 and £39 billion, pounds, the National Audit Office says, well, maybe it will be, but it could well be more than that. There's quite a lot of things we don't know yet, so it could actually, the cost be, could mm. be significantly greater than that. Okay, and Central Bank of Ireland also published predictions of job creation there equally as cheery? Well, yeah, in the short term, they are pretty positive, actually. They're they're pointing out that the Irish economy is doing pretty well. Mm. It's expected to grow by 4.2% this year, which is a lot higher than the expectation about the UK or Northern Ireland. And they're expecting that uh, there will be uh, an extra 99,000 jobs created in the Irish Republic by the end of next year. However, and there's a big however Mm. here, they are expecting there to be a negative jobs impact of around 40,000 fewer jobs because of Brexit. You did talk about Windrush there, you mentioned it briefly. That seems to be having a significant challenge or raising some questions. Yes, I mean, we already know a bit about the the difficulties faced by many people who have European Union passports. And I'm not really talking here about people who are born in Northern Ireland uh, and have chosen Irish passports, but people Mm. who've perhaps born in other countries within the European Union and came over as children. Uh, or later as adults, a number of those have been struggling a bit with showing proof of their legitimate right to continue to live in the UK after Brexit. And there will be concerns that given what's happened with Ridden Rush, where people who did have a clear legal right to stay in the United Kingdom and who've been here pretty well all their lives have actually either possibly been deported or refused access to National Health Service um, care or else have been unable to get back into the country after they've gone on holiday. Uh, because of those concerns, there will be concerns by people with EU passports about what this means and whether the Home Office, the Border Agency and the Passport Agency are actually up to the job and are actually dealing with the rules in a person-friendly way or whether mm-hmm. they're just being a bit uh, difficult, really. Challenge going forward. You've been to a number of briefings and there seems to be a common theme coming through too about 
the voice from here maybe not being represented or heard as loud as we would like it to be? Yeah, um, I've been to a number of Brexit briefing events in the last few weeks. Um, and it was interesting that at two of these, the same point was made. Uh, in one of them, the point was made that Michel Barnier, the European Commission negotiator, had said that he was surprised that there was very little input, very little letters or emails coming to him from people in Northern Ireland saying what they want out of Brexit. And uh, the uh, Giva Hofstadt, who is the leader in the European Parliament on the negotiations, has made the same point. So they're saying they would like to hear more from people in Northern Ireland about what we think should happen. And so if this, you know, if you want to influence what happens over Brexit, this is this is one opportunity. Paul, thank you for that uh, comprehensive update on what's been happening over the last month. Concerned about how Brexit may affect you in the northwest of Ireland? Email the Hollywell Podcast Brexit Focus with your questions at Brexit at Hollywelltrust.com and we'll try to address them on a future podcast. As we mentioned at the start of the podcast, we receive support for this project through the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. And last month, a seminar was held with the groups funded through this programme, and we took the time to have a conversation with a number of groups. But first up, Paul, we're going to hear a chat that you had with Andy McCraggan, who is the CEO of CFNA. What was it that you asked him? I started by asking Andrew to outline why the CFNI decided to support groups to look at the Brexit issue. So the Community Foundation exists to connect donors and funders who want to make an impact in Northern Ireland to all the many amazing groups out there who are doing something uh, on the front line. And often we're working with donors who have a particular interest in a certain issue, but we try and anticipate where new issues are coming up that uh, no one's working on yet and use some of our own resources to work on those. So Brexit seemed like an obvious issue where we wanted to move fast, we wanted to be encouraging dialogue amongst communities, and so we released some of our own resources in order to fund groups to talk with our communities uh, across a really broad range of communities about what Brexit meant for them. And you've put the focus very much on dialogue in terms of this conference. I mean, why is dialogue important in terms of Brexit? Well, we've been hearing just today, as we've heard from groups, that at least in some parts of the community, uh, Brexit is proving divisive. Uh, it, it's taking divisions that are already in society and making those divisions deeper. And there's just a critical need for groups to be talking with and listening to the communities that they're trying to serve. As a, as a grant maker, an organisation who funds organisations to do something with their community, a fundamental principle for us is to be talking to and listening to the people that you're trying to serve. So with this Brexit fund, we were encouraging our grantees to do that on that particular issue. And you've expressed concern about the impact of Brexit on smaller voluntary sector groups and charities. I mean, can you say something about what your concern is there? Yeah, well we, uh, as a foundation, we have a history of funding the smaller organisations in the sector. There's something like 10,000 charities in Northern Ireland and most of them are under £100,000 a year and they play a vital role in being some of the glue that stitches community together on a street-by-street basis or on a state-by-state basis. Uh, and so we really care about those sorts of groups. There are certainly streams of funding that it's unclear whether in the future they'll be there for those groups that would have been supported by the EU. So that's a concern about those smaller groups. 
and in generally an environment where the public purse is uh, more stretched. Often it's the smaller groups who don't have the lobbying capacity to say, we need your funding, uh, who lose out, and we try and get funding to those kinds of groups. Now, today we're speaking at the conference, which is why it's a bit noisy, because uh, the uh, delegates are just breaking up now. But what's your lesson that you've learned from today's conference? Yeah. So I think there was some things I expected to hear today that I did hear today. The number one uh, thing being that there's still huge uncertainty. People are very uh, unsure about what's going to happen and that that uncertainty is driving anxiety, whether that's anxiety amongst farmers about what the regulatory environment is going to be or whether that's anxiety amongst migrant communities about what their status will be post-Brexit. So that I expected to hear and we did hear that very clearly today. Some of the interesting and more surprising things that uh, we've heard today from people are the opportunities that agencies are trying to map out. So, for example, in the environmental sector or hearing from the business community in Newry where people are saying, OK, Brexit's going to happen. How do we make this good for the environment? How do we make this good for local business? What does that mean for training local businesses and what their competitive advantage might be once Brexit happens? Uh, and I've been encouraged to hear people looking for that positive angle and working out what they can do about it. And then we've been talking a little bit today about next steps, about for the groups represented in this room, uh, what we as a foundation might do or what they might do to support them. Uh, There's a strong sense of people needing connection and network and support and information, and so we're thinking about what we we might do about that. Uh, There's a very specific suggestion came up today about immigration advice and that there's the need for somebody to be providing immigration advice particularly for those who are most vulnerable and can't ask a solicitor uh, what their uh, immigration status might be and there's a lot of aspirations to be providing clearer information and uh, maybe five or six of the organizations in the room were talking about websites and other ways that they can provide information and so I'm left thinking about what we could do to help that clear information provision. Which in a sense underlines the role of the community sector which is basically to make things either better or at least as good as they can be whatever the circumstances. Yes that uh, that's a pretty good description of what it's there to do. I uh, am really inspired in my job by seeing local people coming together to try and make their environment and lives better and the foundation's there to find people doing that and to support them to do it and hopefully today has helped us to do that as well. Andrew McCracken, Chief Executive of CFNI, thank you very much indeed. Okay, some interesting insights there from Andrew in the background to the fund. Paul, you also talked with David Holloway from Community Dialogue. Yes, David started by giving some background to their CFNI-funded project before moving on to talk about their findings on the community relations impact of Brexit. Approximately 33 dialogues across Northern Ireland involving 296 participants, reflective of the diversity of our community, targeting primarily PUL and CNR communities but also engaging with ethnic and other minorities, including the LGBT community, uh, young adults uh, and women's groups, we find that Brexit 
in combination with the ongoing collapse of power sharing, and this is important, it's a combination of the two, represent a perfect storm for peace building in Northern Ireland. Together, they are directly undermining all three strands of the Belfast Agreement at a structural level. The relationship between the two communities in Northern Ireland, the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and the relationship between the two states, the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. We can see it in the news. We can track it through political statements. Community dialogue is tracking the impact of this breakdown in dialogues within and between communities on the ground. And what we're finding is that the structural breakdown is reflected in the community. That the political statements uh, and the media coverage, perhaps I should suggest media misinformation, is also having a knock-on effect, reinforcing a growing re-entrenchment into traditional orange and green camps. A growing sense of tension between those two camps, a growing sense of suspicion and resentment between those two camps, and a resurgence of views that are based in traditional myths and stereotypes of the other, that are based in misinformation and lack of understanding, and that over the last 20 years have been, in our dialogues, clearly dissipating as people over time become better informed about self in relation to other. But now the tide's turning uh, and people are returning to those views. Those views are being reinforced by political statements, by media misrepresentation. And, mm. how, and how are those tensions being felt? Is it simply that people privately behind closed doors are saying more critical things about people from other communities? Or is it being felt in terms of you know, more physical or more verbally ex expressed uh, disagreements on, on the street or in the shop or in the pub? We're, we're tracking the articulation of growing sectarian and racist and other forms of intolerant attitudes along with fear, suspicion, confusion, despair, frustration, anger, resentment and bitterness, all of them growing in our dialogues. So that's where we see it um, being enacted. What we don't want to see is it ultimately leading us back into violent political and sectarian conflict using popular sense of fear, suspicion, discontent and resentment as a justification and using the appearance of a hard border uh, and personnel reinforcing a hard border as justification for a return to violence. Now David, I don't want to leave things on a negative note. So what do you feel should be done to actually improve and restore community relationships? Everybody at this gathering has stressed the need to ensure that civic society is better informed. Underpinning the Brexit process 
is a profound absence of information. Nobody voted understanding the complexity of the issue, whether they voted yes or no. The ongoing absence of information promotes fear, anxiety, confusion, anger, resentment, bitterness, uh, and is also fueling a re-emerging sectarian divide across our society. Absence of information, misinformation, absence of effective political leadership. And in the absence of that effective political leadership, leaving a vacuum behind it, where is the civic society voice, non-party political, articulating the felt needs, fears, concerns, hopes and recommendations of civic society? Where is that process? That process is needed to fill the vacuum in the same way that the community and voluntary sector filled the political vacuum through our years of conflict. Really interesting the double impact of Brexit and lack of functioning executive outlined there by David. It's a huge challenge for us moving forward. But Paul, you also talked with Emma Campbell and Anna Grindall from Children's Law Centre on some engagement that they've done with young people and children. Yes, that's an important conversation, given young people will be most affected by the Brexit decision. The Children and Young People Society will be very affected by Brexit, and they were very articulate, it seems. So, yeah, let's hear first from Anna. Now, Anna, you've been running a session in Derry. So can you tell us a bit about what the experience you've had from children in Derry talking to you about Brexit? Okay, it was a really nice session because we just opened it up to youth groups that were interested and to youth groups came forward and they, and they came together for an evening um, and we had um, probably about 25 young people from very just, just all teenagers but from about 13 right up till 17 they worked really really hard we did a lot of education on Brexit in terms of the laws and everyday situations you know that stem from European law a bit of a timeline activity and talking about puzzling over Brexit and numbers like how many miles is the border how many young people are educated and live on a different side of the border. Really hard-working young people, and then we, in the afternoon we did a rotational um, scenario-based thing where the young people talked um, about the difference between a hard border and a soft border, what it meant for young people, um, also cross-border education and what that would mean, and it was really relevant to young people because they were able to say, well, you know, that's my friend, that's in my school. And talk about what that meant. We also talk so there's about a lot of concern by people that were perhaps living on one side of the border and going to the school or college yeah. on the other side of the border. Yeah, they were saying, you know, well, we have to take our passports to school, but am I going to be late to school because I'm going to be queuing up at the border? Will, will I be able to get through? And a lot of these, I guess, scenarios were, were very imagined, but they talked about this more and, the, and they talked about the immediate, you know, well, I need a passport to get to school, but then it began to become a lot more personal because they were like, if I, if I change school, how's that going to affect all my friendships that, that I've developed? Generally, I mean, we talked to nine groups of young people throughout, throughout Northern Ireland and the issue of their citizenship rights when we leave leave the EU, are those rights going to be lessened? You know, is there going to be a diminution of those rights? What about the Good Friday Agreement, which um, has given up, obviously, everybody in Northern Ireland the right to claim dual citizenship? So young people are asking, do I need to get an Irish passport in order to claim my EU rights? Will that enable me to have EU rights? 
So, I mean, all those questions are at the core of what's being discussed and negotiated right now on behalf of young people in Northern Ireland, and they're not having a say in that, and they have no politicians representing them at this moment in time from Northern Ireland. Young people are seeking an opportunity to have their say on them and say, look, you know, please clarify these issues for us. What is going to happen post-Brexit? Is there something we need to be doing now to enable us to protect our own rights? Things that we need to be claiming for, like like passports, whatever it might have to be. So it's a concerning time for, for young people. And presumably as a level of resentment among some children that actually decisions have been taken, been taken for them, not by them, by people who perhaps are less affected in terms of the future because they're older. Yes, young people feel quite a strong level of resentment that there are particular issues that that impact on their lives, their everyday lives, have not fully been taken into consideration. And the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland as well within that, like, you know, living through and across the border, uh, which obviously doesn't affect any other part of the UK. It's an area that's of concern to young people, it's an area that's of interest them they're getting different information ad hoc from different places and I think they just appreciate people talking to them and treating them seriously on on issues that affect their lives. I think that's the one thing that has really struck me out of today is the fact that the children are very engaged and have been very engaged with you about what this means for them and anyone who thinks that children are a passive generation really should listen to what you're saying and what they have said to you in terms of the fact that they want to be heard in this debate about pregnant. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think what it's shown is that young people are active citizens and want to be treated as such. Yes, they may not have had a vote in the referendum, but that doesn't mean that they don't have democratic rights. And just on the vote issue, it has raised the issue of, you know, is it time now to have a proper serious debate about lowering the voting age to 16? Certainly young people are telling us we may, may, may have been a very different outcome if they had been able to vote at 16. Emma and Anna from the Children's Law Centre, thank you very much indeed. We went to another conference recently as well. Uh, We went to the Brexit and the Good Friday Agreement conference that was organised by the Northern Ireland Council for Racial Equality. Conference was held up at the Unison offices in Belfast. And Paul, you talked to Patricia McEwen when you were there. Yeah, I had the opportunity to speak to Patricia McEwen, who's one of the speakers there. She's the regional secretary of uh, Unison for Northern Ireland. She's a well-known trade unionist here. And uh, she is calling for people who support trade unions to engage in a day of mobilisation at the beginning of May. So I asked her, what did that mean? We have a a very important uh, campaign under the auspices of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, Better Work, Better Lives campaign, uh, which has a number of strands, uh, including the need to protect the peace agreement and to to recognise the pretty disastrous impact that that Brexit is going to have on this community. that campaign has taken the form so far of um, extensive lobbies of all the political parties um, and has now moved down to constituency level with local trade unionists um, collectively uh, lobbying on a cross-party basis and um, is also supported by a whole range of allies in civil society. Um, and an element of this has to be mobilising. It has to be the conversation uh, with not just the members but their families their communities with people out there um, it's very important to us that there's not um, that complacency about whether or not we have a government does not set in 
It's very important to see the restoration of devolution, the protection of the Good Friday Agreement, um, and everything that needs to happen if we're to protect the status of the place post-EU uh, exit. And does that mean there will be demonstrations on the 5th of May? Well, um, what we're planning for, 5th of May is the normal May Day, uh, and we're planning to make this a, a hub uh, for mobilisation this time round. Um, one week later, in London, on the 12th of May, trade unionists across Britain will do something similar. And they're mobilising for that at the moment in the same way as we are mobilising for the 5th of May. Patricia, when you were addressing the conference today, uh, you were saying that uh, your visit to the House of Commons, you were told that MPs are unable to discuss the Good Friday Agreement because it's translated into law there as the Northern Ireland Act, which does not cover the same territory as the Good Friday Agreement in full. Uh, can you just explain that, please? Uh, no, what, uh, it was a visit to the Lords, actually, to deal with the, the uh, amendments on the withdrawal bill at the moment. Um, what we were advised was that it is a convention that the Commons does not vote on the Good Friday Agreement because it's regarded as uh, a cross-party agreement and they want no interference with it. But that's well and good as a convention, but what we're asking is that amendments are put down to specifically protect that agreement. Coming soon, the final episode of the Hollywell Testimony series. Here are the final four episodes on May 15th from contributors Anne Donnelly, Julianne Campbell, Lawrence McLennigan and Helen Henderson. The final episodes of the Hollywell Testimony series released on May 15th. Catch up on our previous testimony episodes by visiting Apple Podcasts, Stitcher.com or at our testimony playlist on SoundCloud.com. Search for Hollywell Podcast. We've had a couple of themes coming up uh, from listeners that you were able to address through a couple of interviews as well, held at the same conference. That's right. We've done the uh, the listeners' questions a bit differently this month rather than me trying to answer them. Uh, we've gone to some experts that we bumped into in one of the conferences mm-hmm. and asked them about some of the, the issues that have been raised with us by listeners. Uh, one of those is about the European Health Insurance Card, the, the, the piece of paper, the, what used to be called the Eat 111, that you took around to European Union countries. So if you're on holiday and fell ill, you could get free health care. And we were able to ask uh, Les Allenby, who's the Chief Commissioner for Human Rights in Northern Ireland, uh, about what his view of uh, the future of the EHIC was, and he was quite up- upbeat. The UK government's position on this is that they want to retain EHIC, um, but that is still to be finalised. I suspect that's one of the areas where the EU27 and the UK will come together. The UK has a real interest in something like 1.3 million citizens who live uh, elsewhere in the EU being protected, as well as those who move temporarily, go on holiday, and by the same token, the EU has an interest in that their own holidaymakers who arrive in the UK being protected. So my best guess is that that's one of the areas that in relative terms will be easier to resolve and I suspect we will retain the EHIC kind of arrangements beyond uh, the UK government leaving the EU. I think this one is a UK solution rather than a Northern Irish solution but there are some really interesting issues where Northern Ireland is at play 
because the fact that it has a land border with Ireland, which don't apply to the rest of the UK. So we've got to look at some of the cross-border issues as very specific Northern Ireland issues and others that will be resolved as part of the wider UK uh, set of um, discussions and negotiations. By which you really mean the things relating to people who work on one side of the border and live the other side. Absolutely. We've just um, seen the resolution of an issue about uh, your entitlement to use childcare facilities in Ireland and still claim help in your tax credits and your uh, universal credit. Um, There are very, very few people who are on low pay who uh, commute from London to Paris. We know there are large numbers of people who commute from Derry to Donegal, from Anna to Cavan, Armagh to Monaghan. So there are some issues that are very Northern Irish specific. We also spoke to Bernard Ryan, who's the Professor of Migration Law at the University of Leicester, about the rights of Irish people in the United Kingdom after Brexit. I think it's important to say that Irish citizens do not have a clear status in British immigration law at present, despite the uh, statements of the British government to the, to the contrary. Uh, so there, there is a legislative gap there, and uh, at some point it's going to need to be filled, uh, let's say around the time that the free movement of persons regime comes to an end. Now when that happens, uh, there will be a, a difficult issue arising, I think, as to whether Irish citizens from Northern Ireland, who of course are protected by the Good Friday Agreement, um, whether they will get a different or, and better status than Irish citizens from elsewhere. Um, if not, all Irish citizens will effectively have to be equated fully with British citizens at that point. So there's a difficult choice to be made around that. But, uh, but the, the important thing is, is just to say that it's not, it's, it's not, do, it's not in the law at present. Uh, there is no specific protection for Irish citizens in British immigration law at the moment. As well as that, there have been concerns about the Windrush immigrants and the way that they've been treated by the Home Office and the Passport Agency and the Border Agency. And so we had the opportunity to speak to an immigration lawyer who's been dealing with some of these themes already in terms of the way that the Home Office has become a much more negative body in terms of dealing with people who were not born in the UK uh, but have rights of residence in the UK. Simon Barr, immigration lawyer based in Belfast, was able to talk to us about uh, what his view was from his existing case law in terms of what this might mean to some of our listeners who were born in other parts of the EU and who now live here. I've been dealing with a case in recent months where uh, a legitimate uh, legitimate migrant who had uh, appropriate status was working in the UK in a professional role um, actually had his leave curtailed by email so the email went into his spam box. He'd never ever had an email from the Home Office before. Obviously, whatever server he was using detected it as suspicious and went into the spam. Now, I get many, many emails. I'm sure most people do. And we, it's difficult even to get through our email inbox, let alone going through the spam inbox. Now, the consequences of him not getting the email were that he actually got a letter by post from the Home Office saying he had to report. Uh, his leave had been curtailed. He contacted me, wanted to know if he could continue to work. I said, certainly not. You have to stop work immediately. Uh, and we were making various representations on his behalf. However, I'm also subsequently aware that the Home Office have sort of immediately issued a £10,000 fine to his employer. Now, obviously, the employer knew that he had a visa. They aren't going to get an email from the Home Office whenever the, the employee's leave has been curtailed. But as a result of the employee not getting the email and continuing to work, uh, 
ignorantly continuing because he didn't get the email, he wasn't ignorant of the curtailment, the employer now has to appeal this £10,000 fine and unless they have their paperwork all in order they will, will be uh, having to pay that fine and in fact in some cases now uh, businesses can be shut down on the basis of not having the correct paperwork and having not having done the checks but the person had leave to remain for another six months so the employer wasn't at the stage where they even needed to carry out a further check. It goes even beyond the UK. Throughout the European Union, there there are still uh, many years after free movement rights are supposed to be in, 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 entrenched in law, there's still other countries applying them uh, incorrectly, and that extends to the Republic of Ireland. Uh, with the cross-border worker situation that we have, there's many people that occasions will be working in one side of the border or another. I've had a client came to me within again within recent months who essentially was required to leave the Republic of Ireland uh, because he wouldn't he wouldn't agree to registering his taxi which he used for his profession uh, in in Londonderry he wouldn't agree to registering that in Donegal uh, they were going to seize the taxi and impose the vehicle registration tax and so forth and they wanted him to insure it in the Republic of Ireland which essentially would have destroyed his his work in, in Londonderry. I don't believe he would have been able to operate the taxi anyway uh, if it wasn't properly licensed in the UK. So uh, they, they refused, uh, the, the wider, his wider family health care and the, the authorities there essentially told him to go back to Britain uh, and he's now back to Britain. He is, his family members are not European nationals but he would be a naturalised British citizen and they didn't want him and his family to be living in the Republic of Ireland so it, 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 would, be, it would be easy for me to criticise the, the UK Home Office all the time but I do know not just the, 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 the Irish National Immigration Service but also the other European authorities uh, are reluctant to give full implementation of the treaty rights. Now it was mentioned at the, con- at the conference we're at this morning uh, and the, the term which was used was racialisation of free, free, free movement of workers and I think that's a notion that we, we do need to accept. Concern about how Brexit may affect you in the northwest of Ireland? Email the Hollywell podcast Brexit Focus with your questions at brexit at hollywelltrust.com and we'll try to address them on a future podcast. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you all for listening and remember to share with your friends, like and subscribe as usual. And thanks to everybody, all the people that we interviewed, there's so many, I'm not going to mention them all here, who took part in our interviews and who helped us out with the podcast this month. Thanks as always to Paul, our Brexit expert, and to Dee Byrne for producing. And remember, feel free to get in touch if you have any questions or concerns about Brexit. You can email us on at brexit at hollywelltrust.com. Keep an eye out for Paul's Brexit blog that will appear in the Derry Journal paper and website on Friday the 27th of April. It'll also be on all the Hollywell Trust social media channels. And as always, our podcast goes out about the 25th of every month. Keep an eye out too for other episodes of the Hollywell Trust podcast where we talk about the other work of our organisation and the work of some of our partners. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Okay. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.